Welcome to Beyond the Edge with your host, Dennis Young. Dennis helps companies solve their most challenging business issues. Working closely with entrepreneurs, he's experienced the highs and lows of building successful businesses. He's seen people with great ideas fail, while others soar beyond imagination. Why do some succeed while others don't? What is the winning formula? Let's find out. Peter Moriera has spent more than 40 years in journalism in Asia, Europe, and North America. His postings include London Bureau Chief for The Deal, European Banking Correspondent for Bloomberg, Banking Reporter for the South China Morning Post, and a stint at the Canadian Press's Parliamentary Bureau in Ottawa. His writing has appeared in USA Today, the Columbia Journalism Review, the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, National Post, and The Independent on Sunday, London. He's the author of six books. Peter is best known to me as founder, creator, editor, and publisher of Entrevestor.com, which is a daily publication of the who's who and the what's going on in the startup community. He created this with his wife, Carol. They also produce an annual report, which is a data-packed journal of, again, what's happened in the industry in the previous year. Welcome, Peter. Thanks very much, Dennis. It's great to be here. Peter, after a successful international career in journalism, and now the publisher of what, six books? Uh, the the author of, of six or books, yeah. the author, yeah. yes, of one, course. One self-published. <laughs> Why did you create Entrevestor? Because I'd been laid off. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a, the long and the short of it. I was working for a company in New York called The Deal, 2008 had happened, and uh, they were wondering why they had this guy up in Nova Scotia reporting for them on U.S. financial institutions, and I was let go. In the autumn of 2011, I had four things lined up, four jobs with mainly startups, and one of them was my own project, which NSBI had suggested, to a new platform to put on news stories about all these startups that were popping up. All three of the paid jobs fell through. And um, the only thing that began to gain momentum was Entrevestor. Winter of 2011, my wife and I announced that's it. We're moving to Alberta. I had a job lined up there with a financial company. The Alberta Securities Commission came down on them and shut down the uh, the division I was going to work in, so that job vanished. Meanwhile, this Entrevestor thing kept gaining momentum, so we decided to give it a go, and we stuck around. So, Peter, I didn't know all that, but you have a resume of a founder and a startup, and now a successful startup, which gives you immense credibility, but... Your credibility is not because of your background. Your credibility is because of what we see happening over the last five or six years. You've become the go-to resource for everything that's going on in the industry. We wait every morning for your post. We follow you on all social media, and you seem to be everywhere, almost every stage. So, I mean, 
How have you been so successful? Well, a few things there. One is I don't consider Entrevestor a startup really. A startup is a scalable business, and I'm not sure how scalable Entrevestor as it stands now is because we cover Atlantic Canada. We have a niche market in a small geographic area. Now, when we started, you know, I remember saying to my wife, well, even if this doesn't work, we'll have contacts with the people who are going to be the next John Risley and the next Irving, et cetera. That, that'll stand us in good stead. That has happened. The next generation of codfather, to use the term, are people who were first covered in Entrevester. And when you talk about credibility, Entrevester is dedicated to the support, promotion, and informing of the startup community. We wouldn't do anything to hurt an individual startup. If we think a company's garbage, we simply say, look, I don't think you're ready for this. Come back when you've got traction. I think if we have credibility, it's because it has turned into a good news story. The things that we had hoped would happen have happened. You know, there's still some controversy about publicly owned VC funds investing in these companies. We believe that if you look at the data that we collect, if we look at the data that other people collect, then yes, it's certainly borne fruit. And uh, in the executive summary of the, our next annual report on, the, on the, uh, the startup community, we will be saying that 2021 was the year when the startup community started giving back to its investors because both in Newfoundland and in Nova Scotia, there's been, you know, the government coffers have done very well off the startup community. I'm glad that you mentioned your annual report because it's a must-read if you're in, in and around this business, whether you're a service provider, you're, uh, you know, a professional advising the startup community, whether you're an investor. It, it, it's certainly a must-read, so I look well, forward to it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't look forward to writing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you used the word or the, the term good news story, mm -hmm. and uh, the startup community doesn't always get a good rep. And, uh, and you've been able to turn that around because there are so many good stories out there, but you've been able to unearth them and get them out there in public domain. Tell me about the role of media and, okay. and not only you, but, but others as you see, and maybe what could be done to even escalate it further. Well, when we started Entrevestor, A, this wasn't a big sector. And B, the focus of the media, at least in Halifax, was on trying to find out what the stakes of public sector VC funds were holding so you could figure out what percentage of the company, the, the company had them value of the, of the investment. Today, things are a lot different. There's a lot of media covering the sector now. But the media in the startup community is interesting because the general media now really is covering this. You know, Paul Withers at CBC is doing some great stuff on the oceans. CBC Newfoundland, CBC St. John's has some really, really interesting things on uh, the, what's happening with the startup community there. All Nova Scotia does not allow me to subscribe to their service, but I've seen a couple of their stories lately. Don't tell them they'll get angry. 
They're doing some really good work. We reported this week on LeadSift exiting, and that's a story that they had two weeks ago. We mentioned it in their story that it was first reported by all Nova Scotia. Hats off to them. They're doing some some really good work. This is the most exciting part of the Atlantic Canadian uh, economy, and I believe it has been for the last five years. Nobody is seeing growth rates like we're seeing in in the startup community. There have probably been about $6 billion in exits in the last 10 years. A lot of wealth is being created, not just for founders, but also for investors. And now it turns out that wealth is being returned to government. It's a terrific story. And some of the exits, as you say, have returned some substantial monies to the coffers. I personally got involved in the startup community about five years ago. And in the last five years, some substantial things have changed. And Mm -hmm. you've just mentioned... Okay, well, what do you think has changed? Well, if you take a look at the traditional investor who would have been in bricks and mortar Mm -hmm. for most of their investing career are now coming into the sector. Yeah. I was involved in one startup where we had, I believe, 26 angel investors. More than two-thirds of them would have never looked at the sector before. Mm -hmm. But now they're curious and they're curious, I think, because technology has become so pervasive. It's in everything. So if you're a car dealer, cars are software today, right? So they, they're coming to know the sector a lot better. But they're also savvy investors, and they're seeing the returns that some of these companies are, are bringing to them. So that's why I see some so many things are happening. But I'll ask you the question about the ocean. So the ocean superclusters become a hub. Can I just respond for a second, Dennis, to what you said? I think we're starting to see and are going to see more the next generation of angel investor, and that is people who made their money from technology. And I think that's good on two points. First, these are people who would understand, you know, if you've got a SaaS founder, that would be a good SaaS investor. Uh, the, The classic case would be Patrick Hankinson of Concrete Ventures. The other thing is they know that if it turns out well, they won't get their money for a decade. If it turns out pretty well, the money will probably be locked in the company forever. And there's a strong risk that it won't happen. I think they understand the risk profile better than some of these bricks and mortar millionaires would. Well, it's good to see that we've had some exits maybe four or five years ago mm-hmm. that were substantial. Yeah. And a lot of those investors have continued to reinvest, like you say. Yeah. Some of them have created private equity funds and some mm-hmm. of them have created angel funds and so on, which has been terrific. And I think you're right. The Verifins of the world are creating enormous societal benefits yep. through the university, through the hiring of students and building of those. Yep. Uh, 800 employees. And probably what you'll see in the next number of years is a whole bunch of spin-offs of that company, mm-hmm. which is quite normal. Back to the ocean supercluster. Yeah, yeah. So there are ecosystems around the world that are quite large and quite substantive. Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, Scandinavia, Israel, MIT. And they, they've been successful because they've been clusters, clusters of excellence or clusters of innovation. And now we've got the supercluster, which has become a cluster of innovation for oceans. What do you see is going to be the real power of what that is? Okay, let me give you a bit of background first. Um, You mentioned that we do an annual report on uh, the Atlantic Canadian startup community. We're we're continuing to do that. But we're now working. I'm working on the writing of it this week. We're, We're doing a sister publication now 
of a pan-Canadian analysis of the ocean tech sector in Canada. And we've got 301 companies as of right now. We'll be adding and subtracting as we go along, but right now it looks like 301 companies. About half of them, I think, are startups. So here's what we're finding about the ocean tech community in Canada. You've got established manufacturers on the West Coast, a disproportionate number of them, and a disproportionate number of startups on the East Coast. So you've got the sort of the yin and the yang. It'd be great if those two communities connected more because they could benefit each other. The supercluster, of course, is based here. It is active. Its role, its mandate, I believe, expires next year or the year after. Hopefully it will be renewed. We don't know. You've also got a fascinating ecosystem that's got um, Cove in Dartmouth, the CDL Ocean Stream, based here in Halifax, Lab to Market Oceans in St. John's, the Ocean Supercluster, which does, we should remember, have a national mandate, not a regional one. The missing piece is a funding body. Although CDL, uh, CDL Oceans is interesting because it's bringing in experienced ocean people as founders and encouraging them to be investors. And again, these are people who would understand the industry. There's now discussion about a fund being established in Atlantic Canada, focusing on ocean technology. It was mooted uh, at a live event that we had in October called Entrevestor Live. That That would help a lot. The final thing I'll say about the ocean ecosystem is it's not regional. It, you know, even if you're considering what's going on here, uh, CDL Oceans is bringing in people from California, you know, founders from California, from Israel, from Europe. And I've interviewed accelerator heads in California, in Israel. They know people like Jeff Larson and Kendra McDonald. You know, we, we do have an, an international presence and there is far more of an international collaborative spirit in oceans than just everybody in Halifax, you know, hanging around Volta or uh, in St. John's at, at Genesis. One person pointed to me, if you've got technology that goes in a ship, it has to work at the port you sail from and the port you sail to, or the ship's not going to take it on. So the ocean supercluster to me makes imminent sense. Mm-hmm. I come from a fishing family. I grew up on boats understood the natural resource sector. We've been fishing for hundreds of years. We then, you know, became one of the largest exporters of oil and gas, and the whole oil and gas industry created all kinds of sub-industries and significant expertise in, in marine technology, for example. So that all made sense to me that that would happen. And then we've got leaders like John Risley and Robert Orr and others who really made it happen. But we've got so much other stuff going on here as well. Mm-hmm. that probably doesn't have that large hub. So life sciences, genomic research, healthcare technology, even defense and aerospace. And you see these startups that are happening that you wonder, where did they ever get the idea? And how are they going to launch it? Because again, you've got the world largest hubs, Silicon Valley again, that you're competing with. Or conversely, maybe you're going to get involved in. 
So if you are a life science company and you're in New Brunswick, maybe you're hooking up with somebody at MIT. Are you seeing much of that happening? I'm sorry, of which specifically? Oh, any So any sector where there isn't critical mass, mm-hmm. the startup company needs to find support, yep. investment, expertise, markets. C100 in Silicon Valley is a group that helps Canadian companies navigate their way around the valley. And I was talking once to the CEO of it, a woman at the time who was called Atlee Clark, and she has a background in Atlantic Canada. Her her grandparents live in the Annapolis Valley, and I think she went to Rossay Netherwood. But she was saying that usually when you get a startup community, it's because somebody has a, a fantastic success in one area, something like a Radiant 6. And then you get all kinds of splinter companies forming around that group, and that's how the cluster forms. She said that hasn't happened in Atlantic Canada. In Atlantic Canada, you had the Q1 labs and the Radiant 6. But you can't say that one sector or subsector is really the strength. You know, you've got um, life sciences on PEI. You've got cybersecurity in in New Brunswick, which did grow at a Q1 Labs. But overall, there's diversification in every province. And I think that is really a strength of the region because it builds up excellence in terms of skills, of the availability of skills in, in each market. And even if you've got an advanced manufacturing concern doing a green tech product, it kind of helps if you have somebody, a videographer who can help you with the marketing of it, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of looking for expertise elsewhere, I think the early stage programs, they're going to teach you customer discovery. They're going to work with you on product market fit. And there seems to be a consensus developing that you go through, you know, to use the St. John's example, something akin to the evolution program where you do that customer discovery, then something like the enterprise program where you really get into the market and produce it. After that, what you want is you want to go into a sector-specific accelerator, something like an indie bio for life sciences companies, and we've had a number of companies go through that. Sentry on Prince Edward Island went into an international water tech program. Conduct, which exited last year, went into the, I think it's the Los Angeles Dodgers Sports and Entertainment Tech Accelerator in Los Angeles. That was several years ago. But you get what I'm saying. Sector-specific is the way to go. So you're dealing with people, A, who really know your industry, and you find the smartest of smart investors in what you're doing. Can we shift gears for a second? Absolutely. Again, without naming names, um, there have been some very successful founders in the region. Mm -hmm. And we've had some not so successful. And you've looked at a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a DNA type for a successful founder? No, I don't think so. You've got to have, you know, mathematical sense. You've got to have technical expertise. You've got to have... You got to have backbone. You've got to be a leader of people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What about the ability to be coached? The ability to be coached is twofold. Uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword. One is if you listen to everybody, you you get into trouble. Right. 
You have to be able to engage with your coach. You can argue with them, but if they are right and you're wrong, you've got to be able to A, understand that, and B, make the changes necessary. So many of the founders gets mentor whiplash. And, you know, if I'm mentoring a founder, I, I always like to say, you know, other people may give you different advice, but this is what I think. There is that. In terms of some succeed, some don't, or some of those that really do succeed are those that had spectacular wipeouts. In my head, I'm seeing the guy on the ski falling off the ski jump in the wide world of sports <laughs> all those years ago. You know, just people who really blew it the first couple of times. And that's encouraged. You know, fail fast, fail often. That's sort of the startup mantra. At Barrington Edge, we see the world differently. Our multidisciplinary team of strategy consultants, functional experts, designers, and technologists help solve our clients' most challenging business problems. We are professional entrepreneurs who partner with exceptional companies and brilliant inventors to build world-class solutions to address global problems and to help accelerate this innovation to a global stage. Peter, we're finally seeing the growth of women investors yep. in the region yep. and women enterprises. Yep. The National Angel Capital Association, NACO, just announced their investor of the year for this year was a woman. Mm-hmm. It's terrific to see. Yep. And uh, certainly with the success of Sandpiper and others, these firms have struggled for a long time to get the attention of investors. And they still do. But they're finally taking it upon themselves to lead their own ventures. What are you seeing in terms of what you just said? They still do. And what is it that you think we can do to change it, help it? Change it is just to realize what happens in the investment founder relationship. The truest thing that I've heard, I, I shouldn't say who I heard it from, but a female founder said to me, you know... Male investors will invest in a young man because they feel good about his prospects. They see because of the potential they see. A male investor will invest in a young woman because of her track record. And so the corollary to that is how does the young woman get the track record in order to, to, to get the backing like that? And I believe that is absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm not just, you know, spouting out cliches because they sound good. I believe there's something to that. There's a backslapping. There's the image of, yeah, I want to help this young guy out. Um, I don't believe female founders have the benefit of that same leap of faith that, uh, that investors will take. And I think more than anything, that attitude has to change. We found last year when we did our, our survey that uh, 14% of the companies that we were covering were led by females. If we strip out the publicly listed companies, because we now include publicly listed companies in our research, if we strip those out, 3% of the funding went to female-led companies. That number may fall this year. When you consider we've got raises like 100 million US for IntraHive, this year we're going to see... Outside of uh, the public markets, we'll probably see about $300 million in investment. And I think less than 3% of that will be to female founders. Wow. 
those stats are staggering. Yeah. And clearly, you know, we have a huge problem still yeah. to overcome. But yeah. And uh, Sandpiper, great what they're doing. They don't have the capital to really change that. It's got to be an attitudinal, a, a change in attitude. I'm encouraged to see the presence or the, the public relations that NACO's giving the female and yep. investor, and maybe that'll that'll start to trickle because it's absolutely sorely needed. Yeah. We have um, terrific supports in the region, accelerators, public funds, mentor groups, formal training, university education, and so on. Mm-hmm. Very provincially organized and focused. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm being critical of that, but I look across the world and I see places like Scandinavia that are organized very differently. They're countrywide programs. Israel is another example. Countrywide, well-funded, public-private partnerships, public and private money in large funds. In some cases, many funds in the country competing with each other, which is terrific. Mm -hmm. And many of those funds have big-time players in them, like GE, Motorola, and Siemens. And their role is to look at those founders that they're going to invest in and take them to market. So some research I did a few years ago for the Atlantic Trade and Investment Fund strategy found that those accelerators are way outpacing anybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if we think about that, tried and true examples of how you collaborate together, will we see an Atlantic Canadian strategy around how accelerators and public-private funds can really get come together and give us a lot more power for, for our buck? You know, I doubt it. Um, so we're always going to have four provinces. That's just the way it is. Um, you know, if, if we beamed ourselves back to 1863, maybe we could warn against it. But um, those four governments are always going to want do what's in the best interest of, of their jurisdiction, Wishing the best to the other three, but that's just the way it is. As well as the fragmentation, there is the inarguable fact that there is less private capital here than in a lot of other jurisdictions. You know, you mentioned Scandinavia. I can see Sweden, especially with its tradition of innovation, having a a big nationwide fund. We wouldn't have the same dynamic here in terms of industrial firepower or of private capital. The ecosystem here has been fragmented since it's, let's say that it began 10 years ago. But it has also succeeded with that fragmentation. If I told you 10 years ago what the startup community would look like in 2021, you'd take it. The other thing is, with that fragmentation, there are advantages. I can think of a lot of companies that they were told mainly to go to your local organization because that's who you should go to. They didn't get along or that organization did not see the potential. So they looked for other people to be their supporters. And the story has a happy ending. Well, it hasn't ended yet, but they've, they've made headway. Because you get rejected at door one, you go to door two. If there were just one place to go, you'd find a lot of frustrated founders. I was just thinking it'd be kind of cool if we had five Atlantic Canadian funds Mm -hmm. 
and they they in a sense competed for the startup. So the other way around. Yep. Rather than having to go look for money, the funds called you. Put it that way. Yeah. Well, right now we've got Sandpiper Concrete build, of course. Killick crosses borders. Killick is interesting because Killick is fascinating. Polaris Capital is a really interesting model. Mm-hmm. They've got government money in there. Mm-hmm. They've got BDC in there. They've got Killick in there. So public-private funds and doing tremendous work. So that's a model that I'm quite excited about. I'd like to see that replicated if we could across the region because you know it brings not only public money, which is non-diluted investing, but it brings private sector expertise in certain areas of the startup ecosystem that can be really value-add. What Mark Dobbin has done with Killick is astonishing, and uh, he's still got a lot to play with in Texas, I think, that, uh, you know, I, I don't think he, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. You know, private sector, yeah, everybody says, yeah, why are civil servants running VC funds? Except when you look at what NBIF did with four people on staff, you know, they had a a 28x return on Radian 6. Their portfolio is performing very well. They've had a couple of, of smaller exits along the way since then. They've been very disciplined. You know, the proof of the pudding is in the mm. eating. And, <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of proof around. Peter, uh, on October 6th, you hosted Untervestor Live. We did. It was really great. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I was really uh, struck by some of the comments around, you know, what's happening in the industry. And, uh, you know, we looked at 2020 and the capital stayed on the sidelines. In the last half of 2021, capital is flowing into the market like crazy. We had a good year for capital in 2020. It was about $200 million, including what was raised in the public markets. Okay, let me rephrase it. I was looking more at a North American statistic okay. as opposed to an Atlantic statistic. Okay. Because some of the work that we do is outside of the region. Yeah. Now the work that we're doing, especially in the U.S., we're seeing a lot more capital coming into the market, and we're seeing more U.S. capital coming into Canada. What do you think that uh, dam is as burst and, and there's so much activity and so much excitement. And secondly, is it going to continue into 2022? I'd be pretty worried, actually. The CVCA is reporting that 11 point something billion has gone into startups just in Canada, just in nine months. Now, you know, any given year, five to 10 years ago, you'd see 2 billion. Is the technology and the opportunity that much better and bigger now that it would justify a quintupling of it? I, you know, I can see it increasing, but that's a crazy figure. That, and that, again, that is just private equity. That doesn't include the companies that have uh, that gone via, via IPO. And it doesn't include super angels who can have the firepower of a VC fund. So what we've seen here is we've seen... We'll probably have about 300 million this year. We've had big deals by Interhive, of course, by Colab, by MISA, uh, by Sonray in, in New Brunswick. So let's just look at it from an Atlantic Canadian perspective. I would be pretty optimistic, which I know is, is what I do, but there are companies positioned to have large liquidity events. Carbon Cure has said it is considering 
an IPO or at least a, a listing. Given the, the focus of, of the markets on ESG these days, what would Carbon Cure be worth? When you, especially when you've got it being written up in The Economist, you've got Bill Gates flouting the company on 60 Minutes. I'd be really interested to see how that one would go. Then you've got the companies that have done fantastically well, and you're sort of wondering what the next step is. I mentioned Dash Hudson, uh, Proposify. You know, there, there, there are others. There's a company that comes out of nowhere and says, okay, we're raising $50 million. I think the, the big danger is there's a, a global pullback. There's a technology crash. But for Atlantic Canada, I think things look pretty good. What were your big takeaways from, from Entrevestor Live? From what was said, well, the, the Ocean Tech VC fund is one. The big takeaway wasn't a takeaway, it was go into with. Um, what we wanted to do with Entrevestor Live is present the big success stories. So there are all kinds of events, you know, COVID's run ravage over them, but there have been all kinds of events that really showcase young people with great ideas and a lot of really interesting early stage stuff. But Atlantic Canada is so much more than that in terms of its technology. So we wanted to showcase the really great companies. So we revolved around three companies. It was uh, Carbon Cure, Intro Hive, and Metamaterials. We wanted to get a special one on Virafin, but uh, the way things worked out, we had Brendan Brothers just join us uh, in an early discussion. But we did a deep dive on those companies. And these are the sort of companies that Atlantic Canada really should be showcasing. And I don't know who will be in the second Entrevestor Live, but I know that we'll have no trouble finding companies that, uh, that we can do deep dives on. Um, BioVector from PEI is one that I, you know, I, I should get to work on soon, lining them up. Yeah, we've got to tell the stories. We've got to focus in the events we do on these, these our mega successes. It was a terrific production for anybody in, who was in the sector or wanting to get in the sector or who I thought might be struggling to sort of find their way, that there are terrific stories out there. They're world-class. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely yeah. world-class well, stories. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And the, the event was phenomenal. Peter, we're coming to a close and just wondering, what are your sort of final thoughts on you know, as we close out this year and look into next year, any sort of things that we should be looking for or staying tuned to Entreverster.com every day for or watching your uh, your social media feeds? What do you think are going to be the high points for next year? The high points for next year are, let's say, 21-22. So, you know, where we're going. I'd keep an eye on MedTech, not just biotechnology life sciences companies, but life sciences companies with using digital products. In the latest uh, Volta cohort, all five companies fell into that space. The lab to market movement is starting to show those companies. I would look for what happens with the supercluster. What does the federal government do with its five superclusters? I think that the ocean supercluster can put a, a flag in the ground and say, yes, this is a, a success. I'm unaware of what's happening with the other four. I'd look at the stock market. I mean, if the broader stock market holds up, 
Does Carbon Cure list? Do other companies list? We've just had Swarmio list. There could be, be others that, that choose that route. I would be looking for some movement, you know, it's been talked about forever, on regional cooperation with investment tax credits. And two things make me think something could happen. Not it will, but it could. Uh, First, the finance departments of Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Labrador have both seen this year what this sector can produce and how it will benefit them. Uh, Second is there's a plan for ACOA to backstop some of the interprovincial angel investments, and that could could swing things in favor of a, a regional fund. I think the, the big hairy thing that the community has to hope for is one day that we'll get uh, investment tax credits for people outside the region, which would be fantastic. We're not there yet. What do you think the role, if any, is for large cap companies in the region to be supporting startups through the concept of co-creation? Co-creation and investment. I think the the company that's done best at it is, is McCain's. I have an idea of who's done worst at it, but I'm not going to say. McCain's has uh, worked with startups. They've invested in startups. They've become, if not majority, then certainly the, the largest shareholder in, in Goodleaf. But with the capital that McCain's brings to it, they've got a small plant in Truro. Now they've got a big plant in Guelph, Ontario, they're moving into Calgary and they're looking at Quebec. It's going to take a lot of capital. McCain's has uh, the the firepower to do that. They've invested in a few other companies. They're now the majority investor, I believe, in Fiddlehead Technologies in Moncton. That would be a great model. And I believe McCain's is benefiting from it. That's the, the thing. And there are companies, especially technology companies, that I think, Jesus, these guys should be working with startups. They might learn a thing or two. And I don't say that facetiously. I believe that there are companies that would become better by working with with startup founders. I love your example of McCain's, and and I know the Fiddlehead story um, quite well. You know Sean Carver. Sean's such a great guy. That was a terrific story because, you know, here's here's a startup that brought significant technology innovation to a problem, solved it. McCain's invested in them, and all of a sudden they're now into CPG in a big way. CP? The, the consumer packaged goods industry. Okay, okay yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, again, a perfect example of nurturing a startup, mm-hmm. innovating it from within, creating uh, a, a significant um, player with credibility yeah. that can go and raise money on its own. Yeah, and Sean is one of the smartest guys around. He he, real you know he used to work with Tone Nagdegal on uh, on their training programs and uh, Sean Sean is first rate. Peter, this has been terrific. It has been, Dennis. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I've enjoyed it, and I look forward That's to publishing awesome. this sometime soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Beyond the Edge. Stay tuned for our next episode. Barrington Edge blends strategy design, and technology to build global solutions to global problems. To learn more, visit BarringtonEdge.com.
This has been a Podstarter production. production.